a riddle wrapped in a mystery, inside an enigma, tied off with a who really cares? It's Giddo's nasty notes. <laughs> Hello. I'm Sir Dr. Alex Sarand. Due to a gentleman's agreement and strict contract with his lawyers, I'm obliged to read Gibbo's nasty notes on this dreadful podcast. I'm a retired professor of Western civilization, marooned here on this godforsaken Pacific island. The lawyers do permit me to say that I have had a difficult history with Gibbo, and that I really do read these notes reluctantly. That's right, listeners. Each week, my conservative old Western Civ professor meets me at a studio to read aloud whatever I write for him. He also has a right of reply to defend himself. My name is Tarquin Gibbs, and my advice is don't make bets or gentlemen's agreements. Oh, and our no-nonsense Jane helps with the music and technical side of things. Enjoy. Because I'm deep into feminism this month and wearing my hair in a turban like Simone de Beauvoir, I have asked Sir Alec to review the essays of the lesbian author Terry Castle. I have decided that in order to keep his small stipend... For my butler, he is. Sir Alec must review all my feminist literature. He must do that in addition to every week reading my consciousness-raising pieces. My re-education literature, written just for him. Yeah, I dropped a couple of boxes of great feminist works on his doorstep recently. I think of him sitting before his fire under portraits of queens and kings, his fingers riffling through the female eunuch or penis passion by bell hooks, or Mary Beard's women and power. What must he make of it all? We'll soon find out. Oh, poor old Cephalus, having to read all my literature. Right now as I speak, he is weeping in the studio booth. Sad old patriarch, brought so low. In a moment, he will read his review of Terry Castle's The Professor and Other Writings. Judging from his tears, it may have been all too much for him. I'm worried that he might find it impossible to get past Terry as a name for a woman. He might not be, but in my Simone de Beauvoir headscarf, I'm in the mood for a feminist review. Do you know geishas were originally men? That's right. Geishas were male performers who entertained guests within the pleasure quarters. Only later did the profession become characterised by female workers. Ha! I'm also a male geisha who is wearing a Simone de Beauvoir head turban. Wow, there's a lot going on under this headpiece. So much electrical crackling under this scarf, I might even qualify as neurodiverse. I have neurodiversity sparking out of my ears. Jane, just to interrupt, I think I'm neurodiverse. Because... Every time I meet someone who says they have synesthesia, I feel nauseous. (laughs) Just ignore him, Jane. When I read Terry Castle's collection, The Professor and Other Writing, I found it to be the revelation every lesbian curious male feminist wishes for. Yes, I had a couple of relationships with women who moved on to lesbian relationships after leaving me. I sometimes felt wrongly, that they had been brazenly snatched from me in some sort of macho performance. As rivals, the ladies vanquished me. Even after I demonstrated my bona fides by inviting them to my Roxanne gay reading night. Anyway, I don't believe in ownership. Now, let's go to Sir Alec's review. Sir Alec, you're reading now. Jane, can you patch him through to me, please? (coughs) 
Oh, darling, darling Tarquin, I am not lachrymose, but rather chuckling with joy. It might surprise you to learn that I devoured Terry Castle's book hungrily. I too lost a wife to late-onset lesbianism, as well as the one the church got. Opening Terry's book, and by the way, I have no problem with the name Terry, although I am more familiar, in her context, with the I-E spelling of the name, not the Y ending. Opening her collection was like stumbling upon a hidden computer in a dream and breaking into it to steal the motherboard, holding the very deepest secret code of... Terry Castle. Oh yes, we hit the motherload with this one. First, Tarquin, you are correct. Some women, like the titular professor, are disgracefully predatory and promiscuous. After reading the main essay, I think those women really did steal your girlfriend. I learnt that the professor could do things for women. No man could. Did I detect a subtle note of propaganda here? Quite. I, too, was a professor, and intimated to women that I could do things for them that ordinary men could not. Was there a hint of propaganda there? Indeed. The professor's charisma is always dialed up to sociopath. I always dial mine to sweetie pie. If you want to see, forensically, the workings of brutal charisma, then I recommend wholeheartedly this essay by Terry Castle. In reading, I found words one expects a professor of English at Stanford such as Castle to use. Stertoriously, pusillanimity, bibulous, but also words decent people would love to use, such as Japing, gamine, contumely. She also has a few endearing favourites. Lollygagging and maundering. Lovely. And of course, because she is an academic, we must endure much flashing of French. Diablerie, a word I first encountered in a heated campus closet. <laughs> Diablerie, Swisser, Swatter. And little Tarquin, my bleeding-hearted equal rights activist, I also learned of a light that sits atop the mountain waiting for you. Terry Castle divulges a truth, and it is this, quote, The tenderness between lesbians and straight men is the real love that dare not speak its name. Consider Stein and Hemingway, Bishop and Lowell, Katie Lang and Tony Bennett, or me, me being Terry Castle, and my best pal Rob. End of quote. So, Tarquin, there is hope. One day, like Rob, you may get to be friends with your very own Terry, or perhaps with the women who stole your girlfriends. I, on the other hand, have learned everything I could possibly wish to know from reading this book. To don my old hat as Professor of Western Civilization, I award this collection of essays a surprisingly high distinction. Bravo. Wow, thanks a lot, Sir Alec. I thought you might have found that book more difficult than you did. Let's see how you go with penis power or full frontal feminism. It will be riveting, no doubt. Ah, uh, but...
but oh, we've run out of review time, and now we must move on to our next segment, which is Tarquin. Have you forgotten something important? I have won five minutes of every show to make you read something I have written for you. You like to put things into my mouth. Now I can put things into your mouth, too. And I stayed up all night writing this one for you. Oh, yes, Sir Alec, I had forgotten. Hand it over and I'll read it for you. Just a moment. Dear listener, I have great reservations about this segment. As a professor, I know how powerful literature is, even of the oral sort. Thoughts create the world. From noumena to phenomena, one might say, if one believed the numinous was not itself phenomena. I know how influenceable people are. If I say it, one of you will do it. But if we went around censoring thoughts because some feeb might act on them, then we may as well be the enemies of liberty. The totalitarian governments of groupthink like China and Canada. Just because someone can't behave on a glass of champagne doesn't mean we should ban alcohol. Or that because a man becomes demented by seeing women at the beach in bikinis, we should ban bikinis. Or that because an individual cannot manage their heroin, we should outlaw heroin. Individual liberty is the principle I hold dearest. John Locke taught us that liberty consists of being free from any superior power on earth. This means listeners can make up their own minds about ideas and not have them censored by Stalinesque overseers. Freedom demands the courage to explore freedom. Therefore, Gibbo, I have not censored myself when writing this for you. (laughs) I think you'll find it perfectly aligned with your values. In fact, I have no doubt that it is entirely true. Now over to you, boy. Right then, Sir Alec. I see that your swifty and muse wants me to tell our listeners the way I went about filleting my phallus like a shrimp. Well, I do, reluctantly. Remember your generation when it came through the varsity system. Mind you, fortunately, very few of you came through my school of Western civilization. You leftoids were piercing and cutting everything, all wanting to turn into cyborgs with two sets of genitalia. As such, I think you'll rejoice in this piece, Tarquin. Take it away. No doubt you projected your sick values all over a script you believe lives in my mind. But you're right. You won five minutes of Gibbo's nasty notes, and even though I would never want to be a gentleman, I honour my word. So here we go. Oh, um, by the way, Tarquin, because I know you would be embarrassed by the diminishing connotations of the word shrimp, I have used the English word prawn to refer to your phallus. Ugh, silly old man, but I will read your bizarre projections as best as I can. My name is Tarquin Gibbles. (laughs) Oh, you always love that one, don't you? My name is Tarquin Gibbles. And I am a male feminist born and bred of the island. 
During my undergraduate years at the big school of the island, I developed such a reverence for all things non-Western that I sub-incise my penis. What? I don't say penis. Well, Tarquin, you made me read it aloud with that exact pronunciation. Very well, then. Okay, here it is. I was saying I developed such reverence for all things non-Western that I sub-incise my penis. I wished for nothing more than a bifid phallus, such as found on the New Guinean sugar glider, little mastiff bat, or Australian kangaroo. For some time I considered the Argentine duck's corkscrew, but the surgical difficulty was just too high. I encountered the same surgical barriers with my first choice, the leatherback turtle chopper, with its five lobes, four of which can discharge at any one time. So I settled on the two-headed bifid model. Double trouble. Many cultures, when it reaches a certain age, guide a prawn through a fierce rite of passage. Peoples of the Amazon, Aboriginal Australians, the Sambura of Kenya, and people from Brooklyn all do it. Picture a prawn, picture my prawn, now picture undergraduate accommodation. I doused myself with sanitizer and cleaned my prawn with vigour. I approached it differently to the way you remove the muddy vein when preparing cocktails. Instead of superincising along the top of the prawn with a kitchen knife, I would need to long cut vertically its length on the underside, while holding all the equipment over a big bowl. Most use a scalpel or a piece of flint. I chose the razor-sharp stone because I reject modern science. Traditionally, four or five native men hold the prawn and the prawn owner down while the surgeon chef slices. But I, Tarquin Gibbles, didn't need anyone to hold me down. Such was the burning fervour of my anti-Western sentiment. Prawn in hand, I readied myself. Hard prawns are easier to operate on. I readied myself faster. Note, it is imperative when doing this at home to be careful not to cut anywhere you shouldn't, or else you'll need to buy a new prawn, and they are pricey. Understand, this is a recipe that demands skill and care, and plenty of tissues for prawn goop. Back to the matter in hand. I held my hard pygmy lobster down. Its heart-shaped face looked up at me, the surgeon chef, I felt like Abraham looking down on little baby Isaac. At this juncture, it is customary to locate a large hot rock, but I used a foreman grill. I took up my rock flint and pierced the underside of my prawn, running the flint along the muddy vein up and down until I had really bisected that internal tubing, just as you do when preparing lunch for Papa and Granny. The first wave of goop gushed and was easily soaked up in the tissue. Then the next step, I took my thumbs and dug between the two sides of the prawn before delivering hard, separating tugs. And this is where the foreman grill comes in. Immediately after stretching apart the incision line, I pushed the prawn, splayed open, down onto the hot foreman grill, then weighted it with a heavy iron I had hanging around. You really must push hard so it cauterizes properly. You will notice a sharp odour here. But it's okay, a little like a lamb chop. Continue pushing forcefully into the foreman grill for best results. After about five minutes, I released the pressure and used a spatula to vigorously scrape under the prawn to lift it off the grill. 
and presto, bon appétit. In fact, you'll need to wait at least three months before anyone can eat it. People now say it looks like a microwaved hot dog, split and savoury. Others find the splayed flesh has tones of the deepest embers of a fiery sunset. Ah, you might ask, what was the point of all this? Well, some student at the university bar, who hated Western civilization even more than I did, told me subincised flayed prawns taste delicious. Also, the two-pronged bifid prawn is visually more attractive. Brooklynites say the broad surface area makes it easier to batter. Superior results for everyone. But most importantly, it's much less patriarchal than <laughs> other prawns. <laughs> Done. I've now read your white privilege mail satire, uh -huh. Sir Alec. I don't see why you think this would be funny. I don't find it funny at all. What's wrong with having different types of prawns? Why do all prawns have to be the same? Diversity is the spice of existence. And sure, I've had a few procedures done, but I don't need to disclose which one's on this podcast. Oh, really, Tarquin, with your penis? Disgusting, Tarquin. Oh, I hear you expressing disgust. Well, let us remind the listener exactly who they are dealing with when they meet Sir Dr Lord Sarand. Jane, please play for us Sir Alex's song, Congo Lumbindian. Tarquin, that song has nothing to do with me. You made me sing it. It's your voice, Sir Alec. But with you written all over it. Jane, please remind the listener of who Sir Alec is. Uh, you're not laughing now. Jamaican, Brazilian, Ukrainian, Thailand, Indian, Congo, Lambia, Congo, Indian, Thailand, India, Congo, Indian, Germanistani, Aru, Brazilian, Moroccastria, Australian, Congo, Lambia, Thailand, Brazilian, Ukrainian, China, Aru. Rubia, Fiji Booty, Fiji Booty, Lichtens Thailander, Lichtens Thailander, Fiji Booty, Fiji Booty, Lichtens Thailander, Lichtens Thailander, Japina. The thing about Cephalic is that this is exactly how he thinks about women, as objects of his exoticizing, orientalist gaze, consumer items, made up of the emerald eyes of this group, attached to the lithe brown legs of that one. He really is a dreadful man, but enough of the reactionary old western civ dinosaur for one week. Bravo, Tarquin, bravo. Thank you for reminding our listener of your writerly skills. Congo Lumbindia, my word, a portmanteau of desirable ethnicities. Really? That song reveals more about your prurient subconscious than it does about me, if I believed in the subconscious, that is, which I don't. Beneath every tweed jacket lies a dirty old man. Tarquin, please. And please note that the two pieces of fiction I wrote for you, built and developed character, employed objective correlatives, and vocabularies representative of distinct consciousnesses. You, in contrast, merely put dirty words in my mouth like I was some mad Caliban. You're the maddest Prospero I ever met. But I've always been a courteous man, opening doors for the gentle ladies. 
don't you see that that's the problem? I remember the lectures you gave at the School of British Imperialism. You publicly fantasised about the women of world literature, even while rejecting world literature. <sighs> Isabella Allende and Arundhati Joy. I remember you once saying in a tutorial, imagine a Brazilian woman, Pavitri, Martinez, Anjali, Rodriguez, with hooded Dravidian eyes and a Rio de Janeiro tan. It's amazing you weren't fired then. And every week you salivated over the words Lichtenstheilander and Congolumbian. Tosh! Absolute tosh! I never once said any such thing. You imagined I did in your college bedroom, high as a rocket, no doubt, after injecting marijuana and snorting LSDs. Ah, Sir Alec, you've reminded me. Root word hotspots word of the week is, coincidentally, marijuana. Jane, can we play the short sting, please? As you know, listeners, I've grown attached to root word hotspot, so it is part of the show I keep to myself. Today, Sir Alec's mindless accusation that I spent my youth injecting marijuana doesn't deserve a response. But it jolted a memory about the crazy origins of the word marijuana, a herbal medicine constantly referenced in popular culture. Although it is illegal in many places, you can buy it with a prescription from a stock market listed company. That's Tegrity. Or is it hypocrisy? Listener, do you love iguanas as much as I do? Nonetheless, you'll be delightfully surprised this week by these creatures' etymological significance. Let's dissect them, shall we? Ma iguana. The word originally comes from the Arawak peoples and down to us via Spanish. The first syllable is the common prefix ma, part of that big family of prefixes that also includes mal, such as we find in the word mallard, justed, which means a duck with a social problem. By the way, the binomial for this species is anas platyrinkos. Anas is the Latin for duck. This is something we must explore in series two, if we are lucky enough to make a series two. Our word for this week, marijuana, also concerns an animal, the much-loved lizard that can change its colour, the iguana. The etymological encyclopedias tell us that, in Colombia, a group of men would gather on a Friday night. They would sit in a circle on the floor and place a fully-grown iguana between them. Then they would begin a smoking session, using pipes, hookers and massive cigarettes. As the hours passed, the iguana would produce a kaleidoscopic display of ever-changing colours, transitioning through a sequence of base colours. The festivities would commence when the lizard turned canary yellow, and wine uncorked when it transformed into a bright vermilion. When cyan and turquoise blossomed, the dancing would begin, while the smoking continued unabated. Then, without fail, at some point in the night, the iguana would turn completely grey. And when this happened, all smoking would cease and the pipes would be packed away. The local people now considered the iguana to be off-colour and it foretold general illness if the party didn't stop. To use our prefix for today, the iguana was badly marred and totally off its gourd. Thus, in short... Our word of the week, ma iguana, refers to a very nauseous lizard. 
And that, listeners, is another example of the magic of language we explore on Root Word Hotspot. Tosh! What a load of absolute tosh! Oh, you quiet and down, Sir Alec, or I'll make you sing another love song to yourself. Oh, actually, Sir Alec, I do have something for you to read. Here, here it is. Read this. As noted in a previous podcast, when I ran the School of Western Civilization, we couldn't find a clear line of descent from the ancient to the modern Greeks. My school also had serious difficulties defining the term white. Questions were raised about my school, Western civilization's use of the term white. To avoid controversy, when we used the term, we certainly did not use it. To refer to any of those people found in Eastern Europe, neither the Jews nor the Slavs, nor in fact even the Italians. When we used the term white, we referred to not one individual of all those peoples who reside east of that big old brown river bisecting the middle of Hitler's heart. Well done, Sir Alec. You know, boy, the only reason you can be such a supercilious twit is because people like me defeated Hitler and Stalin. Jane, can you turn him down now, please? The bar is low, but I'm still jumping. Our home is patreon.com slash gibbosnastynotes.com 